This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Exo Academian. He is host of the exemplary podcast Point of Convergence. He brings a brilliant, nuanced approach to contact, abduction, UAPs, UFOs, and much more. We discuss how the human tendency to privilege waking state over many other states of consciousness may be undermining our potential in understanding or engaging non-human entities, how ontological shock expresses in various worldviews, whether aliens understand what the term non-interference even means, <laughs> and how underreported anomalous experiences may be. But first, I've heard some of your reflections on the relatively recent arrival of the mantid entities into the mix. I believe this was when you were discussing Richard Dolan's Alien Agendas book, and that this was or is Richard's view as well. The idea being that mantids are comparatively new to the scene. The 2400 species of the small insect variety have been here for 135 million years at least. How do we reconcile the quite ancient existence of the insect variety if the larger ones are recent arrivals in the human-non-human dynamic? Yeah, it's a good question, and I don't have a hard-line take on that either way. I haven't done exhaustive research trying to pour into ancient texts to see if there's any kind of entities that might fit that description. So I sort of go more by those who have done some of the evaluations and assessments and valet and whatnot. And what's also challenging about trying to answer these kind of questions, as you well know, because I know you have intimate knowledge of these, these creatures specifically, is we have a lack of baselines. You know, it's like, it's just, you know, wh where do you start? Really big epistemological questions, you know, around how do we have any kind of knowledge about these things and what do we compare it to? And there's also the issue of, you know, there's timelines, there's alternate Earths, alternate dimensions, you know, it seems like it's much more the case now that the interdimensional aspect or the extra dimensional aspect even of the conversation really is pretty central now for a lot of people. And when you bring that in, then time kind of gets thrown out of the whack, you know, it doesn't necessarily line up. So there's so many, when I start thinking about that question, there's so many different hypotheses that could work. You know, it could be that they are a, an evolutionary stem from current insects here from a billion years in the future who've managed to time travel back and are interacting with us. They could be beings that are from an alternate earth, which would make sense in terms of their physiology being so similar to the insects we have here but they just followed a completely different evolutionary track, you know, and they maybe became the dominant species on the planet. Maybe Homo sapiens never came around, who knows? So there's so many ways you can go with that one. I think what's most interesting to me is how they seem terrestrial. You know, that's, that's the part that I really take away from it. And a lot of the entities that are encountered in these kind of encounters that people have, they seem so terrestrial, you know, like when we go by this notion that a species is going to evolve to be better adapted to the environment they're from, then either you have the really minuscule chance that they're coming from some distant planet that just happens to have really similar environmental factors as the earth. And that's why they just happen to look so much like a creature that happens to be native to the earth. But that seems like a stretch to me. It seems more likely that they're somehow terrestrial, either alternate timeline alternate earth, something like that. But that part for me is what I really key in on. That's a beautiful take. Added into the mix is that they don't seem to be forthcoming or desirous of sharing their origins. So how do we interrogate the interiority of a non-anthropomorphic entity? Among humans, our origin story is part of how we say hello. It doesn't seem to be part of the etiquette of mantids. So tell, tell me, tell me your, your take on that. So you've had intimate experience with these beings. So when you, uh, what have you gleaned in, in terms of that, in terms of intentionality and things like that? Not much. I've gleaned quite a bit in terms of their intentionality. But as to their origins and the smaller insect variety, I have but the account of one mantid entity, the one I've had contact with which told me they gifted the planet with the insect variety tens of millions of years ago. Do I know that to be the case? 
That's what one mantid told me? <laughs> it sounds plausible enough. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, so that's the explanation you were given in terms of why there's this coincidental, you know, similarity in, apparent, in appearance. You were told that they basically um, seeded the earth with a miniature version of themselves in the ancient past. Correct. Also that they can have temporary control of the insect variety. I've experienced this many times. People can refer to episode zero, Man Meets Mantis, to get into this in more depth. But basically, they can place the insect variety seemingly anywhere they want. They've demonstrated that to me over and over. It's been abundantly proven, in my case at least. It makes morphogenetic sense. As to their intentions, you might find this funny. I hired four different shamanic practitioners and repeated the same investigation of this mantid entity that contacted me, each of the four being blinded to the others so that I could cross-compare where the consensus was among all four. The fourth time I was doing this, the shaman communicating with the entity said, um, it's laughing? It says, <laughs> how many times are you going to do this? <laughs> She said it's like rolling its eyes, not literally, but it's sending me something like that as an image. That decreased my anxiety somewhat. A, because an entity with a sense of humor is encouraging. And B, fair enough, four independent investigations would seemingly suffice. So, Exo, before you flip the interviewer, interviewee dyad here, I want to get to my next question for you. I would love to get your reflections on the manner in which humans, of late anyway, typically privilege the waking state as the real reality and devalue or dismiss dreaming, deep dreamless sleep, non-ordinary states, entheogenically induced states, endogenous fever states, etc. It seems as though some of these non-human entities do not privilege or prefer waking state over the others. There's a case to be made. Much or most of their work is transacted in subconscious or liminal states, and that might be closer to their home neighborhood. Or at least those are modalities they are fluent in. What are your reflections on these blind spots in the dynamic of human-non-human relationships as it pertains to states? Yeah, that's a, another really great and really huge question. Again, my, my mind goes in so many directions on that. Number one, it's sort of like, you know, just our focus on the waking state could very much well be just like a shared delusion. You know, like we have, again, we have no baseline to compare it to. It's not like we can go and say, let's go talk to species B over on planet, you know, C uh, that are at our same stage of level of existence, but they tend to spend more of their time in their in dreaming state kind of thing. And we can talk about it and compare it. We can't do that, right? We, we, um, we can do some cross-cultural comparisons, you know, within our own planet. And there are some differences there for sure, like you even mentioned in shamanic cultures and whatnot. But yeah, to me, it just seems like a an unquestioned bias that should be questioned, uh, especially in Western civilization. And, you know, when we have scientific materialism reigning supreme, then you have these assumptions about reality from the get-go that just dismiss so much of human experience is not really counting. So we get into the quadrants there and all that. But to me, it seems like, you know, Valet has made some interesting postulations around maybe the, the control system hypothesis he puts forward suggests that maybe the, the main change is happening on the subconscious level, so much so that we don't even know it's happening. And when we bump up against these boundaries and very things kick in that make us change collective behavior, but on a subconscious level. So what I find fascinating about it is we still know so little about that about ourselves, and yet we do have some evidence that it might be more impacting than our waking states and what we're conscious of. So it seems to me quite possible that a more intelligent species could completely control the evolutionary track of humankind without humankind even knowing. And that's one of the, without getting too off track here, but that's one of the most silly statements I often hear from people is, you know, if, if there were a species here trying to change us or bring about change in some way, we would know. And I just think that's ridiculous. The whole point of, if you had a species that was that much more sophisticated, they could do it right beneath your noses and you wouldn't even know. That seems easy for me to understand. 
and picture. But yeah, I, I have also found it's very interesting when you just let go of the assumptions about what dreams are, you know, what we're told about them, everything from, you know, it's just the brain's random firings at night. It just takes sort of random electrical charges and throws them together and doesn't mean anything, right? That's sort of like the scientific materialistic kind of approach. If you just toss that aside and just pay attention, just sort of have naked awareness and be aware of what comes up in those kind of states, even in the state right between sleeping and waking, that's particularly interesting to me. And I sometimes feel like when I'm in those states, I just start surfing some sort of consciousness wave and I'm, I'm jumping in and out of different visions of people and places and sometimes entities that I don't recognize. I certainly don't know. Sometimes those experiences even feel like I have a memory of them in some way, but I can't place it. It's this weird feeling of this feels familiar, but I don't know what to attach it to, which is a really strange experience. We're not used to having that experience. But a big part of that has just come from me letting go of these notions about what dreaming is, you know, in the hypnagogic state and all these things, and just being in the experience and just going as naked as I can, what was that experience? What might, you know, and just experience it in its raw state. And it's, it's amazing how much more you begin to experience then. And it's such a subtle kind of state too. It's very difficult. The second I sort of go, wow, what was that? You know, and I tune into it, then I kind of break out and I come back into my conscious state or whatever. So I've been kind of like personally experimenting on those lines because I find it fascinating. And I really began by questioning, you know, what if it's not the case that the waking state is the one that should be primary? And what if all the programming happen happens in between the waking states? So I just think it's a major, it's an assumption that's unquestioned more than anything else. And I think that's really suspect. Again, there are some cultures where that's not the case. There, you know, like you talked about in shamanic cultures, you have a dream and some sort of vision of something, and that would be taken as golden, even more so than if you saw it in your waking state right in front of you. So for me, it's just about opening up and trying to experience these things in a really raw state and try not to bring too much baggage to the table and just see where it takes you. That's sort of where I am at with all of that. I concur, and I love that approach. Your response reminded me of asking that mantid entity how I might go about trying to understand its interior. Its answer was imagine not having your waking, dreaming, and deep dreamless sleep separated or partitioned, but rather having them all occurring simultaneously and integrated as one, and that would be a step toward the native state of this being. Of course, I can't do that. I try it as an exercise. And it connects to cultivating constant consciousness, as in Vajrayana Buddhism. I love your strategy of less interpretation and more conscious curiosity, more immediate sensory apparati. Let's turn towards some developmental stuff. If you will indulge me, I'd love to take a tour of how ontological shock expresses at various developmental levels. How can we best address and respond to ontological shock, altitude by altitude. Let's imagine a Rubicon event in which the beings disclose themselves in some unmistakable way and mass. What might be the response from each developmental stage, and how can we, as healers, intermediaries, experiencers, provide the best help and ease the ontological shock at each developmental level? Does that make sense? No, yeah, it makes total sense. And I, I think what what I'm most shocked by is how the developmental piece is just never brought on board when people ask that question. Generally, when you hear people talk about, you know, how will human civilization deal with capital D disclosure, and they act as if it's like a monolithic response, which just sounds crazy to me because there's, you know, so many different cultures and then so many different levels of consciousness and development in each of those cultures. And the response is going to be extremely different, I think, depending on those different cultures. So yeah, it's really important. I think about, I talked about this on one of my shows where some, some developmental levels, I think, have more wiggle room than others in terms of how to, how to handle it. <clears throat> when you've got, say, if you're way, way into the red and sort of magic values, then you know may, maybe you think you, you've got to put together some sort of ritual to hurry up and please the gods because you did something wrong just total shock there in terms of 
what does this mean and what can I quickly come up with in my own worldview to somehow change this to please the gods, I've done something wrong, that kind of thing. When you get into the traditional values, the religious perspectives kind of hold sway, monotheistic traditions, and, and there there's very little wiggle room for a lot of people. And I've talked about this in one of my podcasts where you know you kind of have this perspective that reality consists of human beings and animals on the earth at one level. And then you've got two other options. You've got Satan and demons in kind of a hellscape and God and angels in heaven. So if you're clear that they're not humans and you're clear they're not native animals, then they must be one of those other two, either angels or demons. And as I talked about on one of the podcasts, because there's kind of this default suspicion of anything new and different that's sort of you know, not mentioned clearly in the Bible, for instance, or within a certain reading of the Bible, then the assumption right away is this is demonic. Certain passages are sort of picked out and said, you know, Satan can parade as an angel of light. So even if the thing looks like a nice shiny UFO up in the sky, and even if they healed my dog, it could all be a ruse and it's just all about deception. And it's amazing how much people will cling to that perspective, even if there's mounting evidence to the contrary. So the critical thinking doesn't really hold sway there. It's sort of this this predetermined worldview will, will hold sway. And even if people do want to question it, if their entire culture around them, their family and whatnot, uh, their extended circles all see it that way, then there's so much pressure to see it that way as well. So I really feel for people in those kind of situations because there's very little wiggle room and that's not a good psychic experience for anybody to have. You know, once you get up into the the green, it's kind of interesting because then you get some, you know, pre-trans kind of stuff coming in. And I even had experience one time where I was talking about some of my wife's experiences and she's had even crazier experiences than me going way back into her childhood. And this person was actually held an integral perspective basically, and yet quickly jumped to, could this be a psychological problem? It wasn't even a question, you know, what, how could we evaluate whether this is a psychological issue or something that actually is manifesting in reality? There really, that question didn't even come into the picture, which kind of surprised me. So, you know, in sort of the postmodern green kind of perspectives, I think if people share this, they're going to be accused of dropping back into like a magic stage and that also can be really frustrating. It's less constricting than, say, if you're at the traditional stage with religion, but it still can be overwhelming. And then I think in moving up into teal and turquoise and integral stages, there's a lot more openness for it. But even there, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but I find sometimes that the only one of the challenges I find with people who are really into integral perspectives is categorization becomes like a religion on its own, you know, like we can slot everything into every single category and we can, you know, we can peg every single person in every culture in exactly these boxes. So there's a whole different kind of set of boxing that comes online then, but that's certainly, there's more open, openness to it there because your perspective on reality, spirit and mind is much broader and open-ended kind of thing. And in terms of helping each of those different stages as I talked about in that one podcast, I think the key is to help that individual mature the current stage they're in. You know, it does no good to talk to them from a level or two above where their center of gravity is because it just it won't translate. And so they'll either think you're you're crazy or you've been possessed or whatever, but they, they're not going to take you seriously because they have no hooks to put that on. So you have to sort of like help them ground it in a way that's healthy and can mature their current perspective. Again, and you really have to consider their social situation, their family, their culture. You know, what are they going to deal with? How can you support them in that? And maybe start planting the seeds once they've matured that stage, depending on you know where they are in the spectrum, to help them maybe even progress up a stage because of the life-changing experience they're going through. The demon aspect is fascinating. I'm not laughing at that frame, which sees demons everywhere. But these demons are really concerned about the environment and nuclear weapons. <laughs> Very atypical demons. Stuart, let me, let me jump in there and just say, see, 
I've gone through sort of several different stages myself in my lifetime, including at one point, considering myself an evangelical Christian earlier on in my life. And so I think I have a, a unique ability to remember what it's like to be in those circles. And as much as I can totally relate to what you're saying about that just seems so crazy or hard to sort of wrap your head around, when you really do have this sort of like throwaway thought about the earth, you know, like there, if, you, if you read the Bible in such a way that there's going to be a new earth that's going to be created from scratch, therefore this one doesn't really matter. It's sort of more like a, a playground, a stage to like, you know, establish whether or not you're going to hell or heaven. And that's basically all it is. Then things like envir environmental concerns and global warming really takes a, take a second seat. And I know that's very difficult for people who don't come from those perspectives to understand, but I was there one day in the past. And so I know how much that holds sway. So again, it's like all of these issues um, that are considered major issues today that we're trying to address, it's seen completely differently from that worldview. And that's the challenge. These worldviews are so absolute that they color everything. And so I think it would not be a stretch to imagine in those circles, they would say, well, of course, Satan and his demons would talk to you about global warming because that sounds like you know, like a liberal concern that we know God's not concerned about because he's going to create a new earth. And it's just meant to deceive us from our main path, which is only following Jesus, getting to heaven. As much as that sounds hard to wrap your head around, that's how a lot of people see that when they're at that level. It's a really good point. It can be tempting to think of worldviews as an interpretive lens that people have a preference for or try on and take off or just something they've become accustomed to. Actually, what is closer to their lived experience is what you just related. Different realities are disclosed and inhabited at each of these worldviews. It's not metaphorical. This is their reality. It's a great point you bring up. This is not ornamental. This is their reality anchored in the body and day-to-day -day life. Yeah, exactly. And, and sometimes you'll, you'll see people at different levels trying to sort of shame others at, at a lower level into sort of coming to the truth, having their own coming to Jesus moment in terms of a higher level of consciousness. But again, you, you know, all you're doing is preaching to your own choir when you do that. You know, it, you know, to you, it looks like, how could you be concerned about this and not this? That just sounds crazy. But again, even those people like at Green are missing the fact that these are absolutistic kind of perspectives. And it's completely understandable that someone at a different level is not going to see it that way whatsoever. Their concerns are completely different because their data sets different. Their understanding of what matters in reality in the most ultimate sense is completely different. Yep. Then factor in additional elements like stress inducing regression, whatever developmental stage we're at under stress, we often revert to earlier, more fundamental levels in trauma, stress response. Also to circle back to your wife sharing her experiences and someone versed in integral, quote unquote, reflexively questioning her mental health. There's a type of integral that's merely cognitive or intellectual. I've been guilty of it plenty of times in my life, so please don't think I'm excluding myself from this equation. There's a lot of really smart people in the integral mix, and that is not the same as a deeply embodied, non-cognitive inhabiting of that strata. I mention that to see if you want to offer a little more color as to what you've experienced in the integral world, for better or worse. Yeah, I'd be happy to, and I would love to get your take as well. I know that the experiencer group is something you brought to the integral life world and all that. I'm just curious what the response has been for people who haven't had these experiences in those circles. But yeah, I remember even John Mack, when he kind of went, went under the, the fire kind of thing, when he was being questioned at Harvard, the, again, the strong assumption was, come on, John, tell us, is it psychological or is it manifesting in the physical world? Which one is it? The assumption being those are the only two options, that either it's some sort of you know, psychological condition, mental illness, right, delusion, or something that is somehow measurable outside of human consciousness or human perception. And John Mack you know, famously said, why can't aliens both exist and not exist, you know, like existing in some liminal zone you know, that we sometimes intersect with, but not always. I think that 
What I found in integral circles, again, like I was alluding to this sort of obsession with hyper categorization. And like you say, it's very much heavily geared towards the cognitive sense. And that some people who just love ideas and hey, I'm guilty here too. I, I think most people would consider me left brain first, right brain second, but I definitely have both going on. But I, I definitely, I'm a wordsmith. I love categories myself. I love when things really neatly, efficiently fit in boxes. So yeah, I think people can fall in love with the idea of having the most sort of advanced views of these boxes that we can fit everything in. But what we lose in that is just the raw, I don't know, you know, like just the the rawness of kind of a child experiencing things for the first time. And I don't just mean like giving lip service, but really approaching and embodying life in such a way as it's a question. And I'm not going to, I'm going to bring as little to it as I can and just experience in a raw state. Like I was talking before about in these dream states and, you know, the meditation states that I get into. It's one thing to say, I'm open to that. It's another thing to really, like you say, embody this sense of, I don't know. And as much as Ken will even say, you know, integral is the latest and most advanced and helpful way for us to make sense of reality, but something will follow it. So don't get, you know, don't get too wedded to it, but people do. That's just human nature. Dogma kicks in, it seems like at every level. So that's, that's the experience I've had is that it, it, I've had to sort of go outside of those circles to have these conversations is what it really comes down to. That's partly why I was fascinated when I heard your take and the experiences you've had, because you're one of the first people I've met who, you know, is that at that integral stage, understands all the conceptions and yet is having these experiences and trying to make sense of them. So let me turn it back to you. What is your, how have people received your experiences in integral circles? Hmm. Maybe I'll preface with an anecdote in response to that. So, Ken Wilber, integral philosopher, also a close friend of mine. I married his ex-wife. He's a godfather to my kids. It's a lot less weird than it sounds. Uh, point being that I'm biased in these respects. 27 years ago, John Mack told me he wanted to have a face-to-face -face with Ken Wilber. I thought it would be important, significant, the two of them coming together to discuss abductions and more. Because I kind of drove Ken crazy with this subject, trying to acquaint him with the work John was doing and, <laughs> uh, you know, driving him up a wall, talking about this for hours, wasn't really a passion of Ken's. Ken did not want to meet with John and wouldn't do it, which broke my heart a little bit and John died with that invitation still open. Well, Ken was over for Christmas a few years ago, and we were discussing my mantis experiences, UFO encounters, etc. By then, Ken's take had shifted some. I had asked him what he made of it all, did he think it was real, and he said something to the effect of, it's as real as this is, indicating the room we were in, its contents, etc., which I thought was great. He's also, he's coming on the show soon. More broadly, when I came out, to the integral community, I braced myself for backlash. Nothing happened. I heard nothing but positive responses. Now, granted, I'm probably not hearing from the people who just think I'm mentally ill. It helps that we have Sean as Bjorn Hargens, Michael Garfield, Jeff Kripal, Kimberly Lafferty, Bruce Alderman, yourself, and a growing list of integrally informed voices coming forward to own the fact that we are experiencers. We have had these experiences, and they do not reduce to simplistic quadrantisms, <laughs> let's say. Let's get back to you. Did you say, quote, every event is an interpreted experience, end quote? I did, yes. I love that. It stuck with me. It's a t-shirt worthy axiomatic phrase. So in the spirit of that phrase, I wonder if we might do a brief survey of interpretation. Basically a stroll through the quadrants as you relate for us how interpretation feels from an individual's interior, from our social, cultural interior, how it feels registered in a person's body as a somatic interpretation, and then of course our collective objective interpretations through our objective systems. Can you take us on a little tour of these distinct interpretive lenses? Yeah, and let me, let me 
first say a couple of things about the interpretive aspect, because one of the things that kind of drives me crazy is when, you know, people who supposedly have insider knowledge, you know, like for instance, like Tom DeLong with TTSA will come out and say things like, all I can tell you is what, what we know is disturbing. And that would drive me crazy because that's an adjective without context, right? And what's one person's disturbing is another person's fascinating, you know, and again, your developmental lens, your consciousness level, your experiences in life are going to completely color differently how you might experience the same event as somebody else. So I've kept, you know, banging on, let's have the data, not the interpretation, because it's almost useless otherwise. I find it kind of frustrating that people with, with insider information assume that everyone else is going to have the same interpretation of the raw data that they have. But yeah, in terms of in terms of the quadrants, this is an interesting one, partly because of what I was saying before about perhaps so much of this is happening on the subconscious level. So the interior becomes a huge aspect of it. And again, the part that's kind of alarming to some people and fascinating to others, but either way, it's this big question mark. It's this big mystery. You know, We don't even understand our own subconscious that well. And so if there's a species that knows us much better than we know ourselves, it could be encoding things at that level and we not, don't even know about it. But when someone has, again, looking at those different levels we talked about, whether they're traditional or they're at green or whatever, the spiritual component, if you're somebody, again, who has a view that there's God in heaven and God doesn't let bad things happen to you. And you suddenly have a contact experience where it feels there's a ton of ontological shock. Um, you might even have physiological issues that show up, you know, and then you're moving into the exterior. People do end up having sometimes lifelong negative impact from some contact experiences now, the question of whether or not that was intended by the, the others, the visitors, is a separate question, but there are, we have to acknowledge that some people have negative long-term impacts, while others report being healed of things that medical, in a way that medical science can't make sense of. So you've got those two. You've got the, uh, you know, it really shows up in, in people's bodies, um, everything from strange markings or scoop marks, you know, that they suddenly notice from a contact experience. And how shocking would that be? You you wake up and suddenly, this isn't my personal experience, but I'm saying, imagine this, you know, your spouse turns to you and says, whoa, look at your arm. And there's a scoop missing, you know, and maybe you happen to remember hearing about this is what happens to experiencers. They, they get taken on board craft and they're experimented on and samples are taken and you can't place where that happened. You know, you don't, it looks an awful lot like what you've heard about these scoop marks. And so suddenly you have the shock of that, like, I have no memory of this, no matter how hard I try. And yet, you know, that's happened. Or you add to the mix that you have missing time. So not only do you have missing time that you can't account for, but you're noticing physiological uh, effects on the exterior, on your soma. And so now you've got the spiritual interior aspect of how do I make sense of the world in general? Where was God in this? You know, if you're at that level and what does it mean when I have no control over what happens to my body? You know, I have no agency. And then the cultural piece is so interesting. The collective interior, right? Because it's been so fascinating to watch slowly this topic gain traction in society, but so slowly. And it's, it's amazing how much evidence there is, how much data there is, if you're really willing to look. And yet it's amazing how much of the culture just assumes it's not there. That again, this de facto dismissal, that that kind of thing could even happen, which is such a dogmatic perspective. It's not based on data or scientific method or anything. It's just de facto decided that can't happen. So I'm not even going to look for it. I don't even have to waste my time reading into the data, right? So you've got that aspect going on where on the outer you know, collective, there's no acknowledgement whatsoever. And even now when some people like White House spokespeople are forced to talk about the UAP topic, they kind of do it with a snicker and they, they kind of chuckle because it feels like tinfoil hat time, right? To them. And yet, there's lots of evidence that 
thousands, if not millions of people are being impacted by these events. And so you've got this massive change happening on the collective interior without it showing up in the exterior yet. So the fact that you've got those four different levels going on at the same time is fascinating to me. And again, Valet has even suggested that that could be a way that you could effect massive change in a civilization because the elites never even address the issue. It happens completely without them being aware of it because of their own prejudice, basically. And yet you can affect these massive changes in the long term. Well put. Love the point on how little we understand about our own subconscious. Millions, tens of millions of years as a head start on understanding the interiority of a collective. It's impossible to even speculate the skill a species might possess in shaping the inner experience of humanity. Seems like a grave liability to omit such questions from our inquiry, which is why I love your podcast. You go there. Let me turn us toward the law of non-interference. <laughs> you know, I think this is a funny one. It's a trope. We often hear entities referring to it, to the law of non-interference to which they are bound. But we also have them harvesting our biological genetic material, erasing and manipulating our memory, taking us ostensibly without our consent, often doing so along bloodlines over generations. They shape our narrative using elaborate theater. They instill experiencers with a sense of urgency and then ironically a paucity of insight about what or why. They have spent decades at minimum creating an entire new form of beings, hybrids, and they place them on Earth in a clandestine fashion. They shut off our nukes. They antagonize and vex our military branches at every turn. There are cattle mutilations, human mutilations. They flood <laughs> our minds with telepathic downloads, influence who we marry, mate, our friends with. I could go on and on. But what I find funny... <laughs> What I keep wondering is, do they even know what non-interference <laughs> means? Their presence could not be more intimately braided with ours. So what gives with the non-interference line? Well, great question again, and another huge one. I would say several things on it. Number one, you know, we talk about the UFO phenomenon, singular, but I think it's almost certainly phenomena numerous actors. Many of them I actually sort of take the perspective are coming from a high level of consciousness and technology, almost to the point, getting back to your former question, where those kind of collapse into a, a new way of being that we wouldn't even recognize as technology. You know, there's that aspect. So there's, there's numerous actors. And, and when we hear things like, you know, the non-interference, which kind of like is a Star Trek prime directive, right? It's hard to know if it's more important that we believe that than it's actually true. Like maybe if part of the messaging to help us embrace change that does need to happen is to let us believe that we're doing it, you know, and that we, in that sense of agency, makes us own it more and therefore take more responsibility for it. That could be part of it. Because partly, one of the things I run into all the time is just this sort of like arrogance that, listen, we're the top dog, you know, on the block. What do you mean some more sophisticated intelligence could come here and tell us what to do or change us? You know, how dare they? And we've had this sort of like assumed superiority for the entire history of our species that I think it's really hard for people to even begin to grasp with these questions about what it would mean if there's a more sophisticated intelligence here. And I think there's also the piece about you could argue that there's been a major uptick since the dawn of the atomic age. And that raises questions about what do these atomic weapons do to the environment, not just to obviously to the, the biosphere and to you know, animals and whatnot, but also what if there are other species like sister humanoid species, for instance, living in the ocean or something or in the caverns of the earth, or some species that kind of like interdimensionally is here sometimes and sometimes not, and is completely impacted. You know, like we, you know, for instance, the mantis types, you know, like if groups like that are actually native to the earth in some way, even if it's in a way we don't fully understand, then they're going to have a vested interest. And when we get to the point where 
the adolescents on the block are now detonating these massive weapons that you know can destroy the biosphere if not end the civilization then suddenly you might reconsider the law of non-interference and say well and, and who knows maybe again lots of speculation here maybe they've even seen civilizations on other planets destroy themselves in exactly the same manner that the trajectory we're on now and they've i've actually heard this right you know in some of the literature you hear they've seen it happen before this time they didn't want it to happen you know i think even dolores cannon talked about that so they've stepped in and this time they're using more intervention through a variety of means to try and change our trajectory before we destroy ourselves but again it getting back to the subconscious change and even the collective subconscious i think that they could also be bringing about change and that level in a way that we wouldn't even recognize but yeah I, I totally hear your point and if you think about how few people actually report sightings and even more so any kind of strange encounters right very few people report that even today so when you start you know doing the math on those that do report it you start thinking wow a lot of the population huge numbers are having direct interference intervention in their lives and it's hard to not assume that this that's part of some grand scheme to affect change the entire civilization let's talk about the ratio of reported to unreported experiences however severe i might have imagined that disparity to be when i began looking deeply in a sustained way I couldn't comprehend the divide between the great number of experiencers and the comparatively minuscule number of reports. It seems to be way worse than even one out of ten who ever report their experiencers. I did an informal survey of scores of experiencers, and I could count on one hand those that ever reported their experiences to anyone, out of dozens. So what's your guess on what the numbers may be? worldwide as to how many experiencers, abductees, hybrids, sightings, etc. we're dealing with. I know this is conjecture, but will you indulge us? Yeah, I mean, the first question is, who do you report to? I mean, it's not like we have some ministry of anomalous experience that we can call up and say, hey, I've got a report to make. And they say, well, we welcome this. Thank you for calling us because this is a normative experience for our, for our culture. It doesn't happen, right? It, even within the, the military, right? It's only recently that the Navy has said, okay, not only do we want you to suppress and not, not talk about these things, which has historically been the case, right? If you had a sighting, let alone if you had some sort of anomalous experience with an intelligence, but even if you had an, a sighting, the writing on the wall was you don't talk about it. If you do, it's going to completely impact your career and your ability to advance that's in the military right in civilian circles yeah i mean you think about the distant past when people would call up the air force and say hey i had this had this sighting and in the distant past you know sometimes the air force your local air force would take it seriously and take a note but again because of a long history of ridicule and you know a, a policy of ridiculing and basically holding people who ha have these kind of reports in you know scornful ways it's completely reduced the amount of reports that are made and nobody wants to be the crazy one right and so that number one right away is a huge diminishing factor in how many people come forward because there's no no way to come forward you know you even hear about situations like with MUFON, which is supposed to be you know if there's some civilian organization you could come to it would be them and yet i've heard many tales of people who came forward and if their story didn't fit with MUFON's preferred narrative about ETs and it following a certain kind of pattern, it got ignored or they were, they were ridiculed even by MUFON of all organizations. So you've got all that going on in terms of just all sorts of incentives to not talk publicly because of that. Many people would could lose their jobs because again the assumption is that sounds like mental illness these the the de facto assumption is this can't happen therefore if you think it is something's wrong with you so that is going to completely again suppress people coming forward then we talked about all the developmental levels and again if you're in religious circles at all 
any kind of traditional setting where you're going to upset people's prescribed view, you're going to have all sorts of reasons to not come forward. Again, even what, that's what I found interesting, even on, in virtual spheres like UFO Twitter, there's not that many people at green and above. You know, most people there are not at that stage. And so what that tells me is people who, again, the facto kind of assumption is that this stuff doesn't really happen if you're above those stages. And so again, you get the pre-trans fallacy kind of coming in, you know, assuming that anyone who's thinking that is reverting back to sort of magical thinking. So gosh, yeah, I, I gotta agree with you that the the numbers are minuscule compared to the number of people who are actually being impacted in these ways. And then I'll throw in another piece, which is, you know, I've heard some theories that certain people who've been through certain kinds of trauma, especially as children, are just more likely to remember these experiences than others. It's not that they're necessarily more likely to have them, but they're more likely to remember them because they've already developed this capacity to sort of divide aspects of their experience and who they are and their different modalities. And so they can recall these things because they've become good at it by necessity because of trauma when they were kids. But it may be happening to the majority of the population and only a subset actually even remembers. And of those that remember, only a tiny subset actually come forward. It feels like that's spot on to the best of our registry, the best read of available sources. It's an iceberg scenario, tiny fraction above water, gargantuan behemoth beneath the surface. And we don't know what we don't know, as the adage goes. Perhaps the lion's share of this enigma is transpiring in ways and in realms beyond our purview. But let me change gears to the double bind that is faced by people who are genuine experiencers of contact, abduction, but who are also employed by alphabet agencies. These are people with clearances, working in the black world, the secret folds of our institutional structures. Where can they go for help with their ontological shock, with their anomalous experiences? Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating question. There's so many, again, so many aspects to that. I think you're so fractured from the average person at that point. You know, you live such a, a separate existence because, you know, it's not generally good for the human psyche to maintain deceptive stance for a long period of time, to pretend to be someone you're not. That's not good for your psyche in the long term. That's in terms of the public aspect. And then if you add to that, that not only can you not talk to people in your family or your friends about what you really do and what you know, but you can't talk to your colleagues in these deep black projects about what has experienced and what you've experienced because maybe that's considered either taboo in those circles or it'll bias you, prejudice you in some way that is not valued in those circles. So talk about a double bind. I think in, in that kind of situation, yeah, it's not a good recipe for, for mental health, that's for sure. You know, and I, I think also sort of joining that with what we were just talking about with experiences in general, what I find unaccounted for in most of these conversations is how much humankind in general prefers dogmatic views. You know, I hear plenty of people, and I've been pretty outspoken about when Luis Elizondo comes out and says he's encountered people high up in the Pentagon and the Department of Defense who have tried to shut down these programs because they're assuming they're demons. So we're not talking about your grandma who's trying to tell you she doesn't want to hear about this because she thinks it's demons and it gives her bad dreams. We're talking about people in the, the highest echelons of our military institutions and government trying to shut down this conversation before it's even begun because of these dogmatic views. That's super problem problematic, but just as challenging is the, the spokespeople for our culture who are sort of like the modern day priests, right? The, the scientists who have a completely reductionistic view of reality that they, again, don't even want to address this. They don't even want to look at the data. They're embarrassed for us, basically, even having to talk about it because they're so convinced they're right. So all of this is going on. So 
while people will quickly point out how Galileo was persecuted by the Catholic Church, I mean, we have plenty of that going on today. It's really no different. We just change one dogma set for another. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Exo Academian. Patrons and Plus members, consider it to have already been caught. Minus listeners, you're never gonna get it. Never, never gonna get it. For more information on his brilliant podcast, Point of Convergence, check the show notes. Forbidden love. Can a patron touch a plus? Can a plus brush a patron? They exchange longing looks over a heap of steaming trash and steal into the club, the Union Club in Manhattan, trotting gingerly past a gawking Anne Hathaway and a gape-jawed Bono. I haven't cared since Sunday Bloody Sunday, plus murmurs to Bono. Oh, you too, patron smirks? Bono bows. Hathaway looks away but finds she's facing a wall. She pushes the tip of her tongue over its tough texture and moans a mawkish melody. Patron and Plus push on in search of some very tasteful toilets. They select adjacent stalls, each appointed with eminently genteel commodes. Doors lock. Furtive hands meet beneath a divider. I want you to have this, Patron whispers to Plus, placing something sacred in her palm. It's an unreleased Stuart Davis album from 2015. Plus blinks, unbelieving. Oh my fucking god, she gasps. I have something for you. Quick! Plus plucks a thumb drive from her Mew Mew and passes it to Patron. Hours and hours of exclusive content. Fuck! Did Giuliani just come in here? How do he get into this club? Patron says, he owns this club plus. That's true. A trombone glissandos its disapproval. <laughs> Giuliani turns and rattles plus's door. Ocu fucking pied. She dry heaves his way. One glossy eye leers through the crack. I can't be mayor of LA. I hate the Dodgers. I'm a Yankee fan. Patron and plus freeze in terror. They lower their hands, switch to sign language. What do we do? Signs patron. Why are you whispering? He can't hear fingers. Wait, I've got a plan. Your phone. Go to podcasts. Episode 45, Jeff Kripal. Play it. Patron pushes play. Meditation or he's dead. I mean, it depends on your interpretation. Kripal's erudite academic voice echoes in the air. The liberal lecturing hits Giuliani's ears. He cringes, collapses. Stop! Make it stop! Uh, The humanities! Plus and patrons spring from their stalls like gazelles on Adderall. Over Giuliani, past Hathaway, still licking her wall like a sweet sheet of stamps. Speeding by Bono's big glasses. Oil be having some of that glaucoma, Bono explains. Patron and Plus dart from the doors of the Union Club. Gasping, spinning, they glance up and moan. Wait Wait a minute. This This is is Union Union Square. Subway. Station. Toilets. This is for minus listeners like Giuliani. Not patrons and plusers like users. They embrace and dry hump goodbye before turning in tandem to re-enter the subway toilets. <laughs> oh, I, I'll, I'm just want to check on Anne, plus stutters. Samesies, patron nods. They disappear behind the soiled doors of the Union Station subway terminal, aching to lick whatever wall Hathaway hath had her way with. To become a patron, click I got a shout out. <laughs> Atoxeter, England, 1994. A motorcyclist was speeding along a rural roadway and noticed his bike behaving strangely. He decelerated and stopped to make an inspection. As he examined his bike, he noticed an intense light saturating the area. It was brilliant and white, 
He searched for a source and found that overhead, about 30 feet in the air, was an enormous square. He described the underside of the object as being, quote, filled with superstructure and spotlights, end quote. There appeared a configuration of pipes or circuit-like patterning on the exterior beneath. The illumination emanating from the object diminished and it set to motion. From the new perspective afforded as the object changed position, the witness was able to perceive the craft as being a pyramid form. Only its base was square. As the object receded, the biker was unable to start his vehicle and ended up having to walk all the way home. Later assessments revealed the motorcycle had become highly magnetically charged. Additionally, the witness was subsequently afflicted with physical maladies, likely connected to the sighting. Coverage originally appeared in the Daily Mail, March 3, 1995. But to see a splendid artistic depiction of this event, pick up the book Dark Files by Michael Schratt. Check the link in the show notes. Creativity is a spiritual path, past life regression, anomalous experiences, meditation, and esoteric practices. These are a few of our favorite things. If you'd like to book a session with me, Stuart Davis, to explore how your life can be deepened and enriched in the mystery, go to theliminalmuse.com or check the show notes. Also, if you're an experiencer of anomalous phenomena, from near death, out of body, mediumship, clairsentience, lucid dreaming, precognition, abduction, UFO, UAP, Sasquatch, or whatever, consider becoming a member of the Experiencer Group. It's a membership site providing support and a stigma-free environment to connect with other people from around the world who have had similar experiences. No stigma, no trolls, just positive anomalous culture. Lots of face-to-face meetups, exclusive events with luminaries, and in-person events for members. Go to theexperiencergroup.com or check the show notes. Travel hurts, I don't want to start To make this trip across my heart I would just stay here if you weren't living in my ear Whispering little cues, aiming me into Other voices disappear